You're listening to Mammal Watching with Charles Foley and John Hall. You can find other episodes at mammalwatching.com slash podcast. Uh, hello and welcome to the Mammal Watching podcast with me, John Hall from New York City. And me, Charles Foley from Minneapolis. So how are you, John? Yeah, I'm good, Charles. Thanks. Um, I've been quite busy this week just catching up on stuff after my, my recent travels. I was in Ecuador at the start of June and I've been going through the pictures. So it's been fun to relive some of the some of the memories. And one lodge in particular there I was really impressed by, and it was the last place I stayed, a place called the Napo Wildlife Center in the Napo Valley in the Ecuadorian Amazon. And um, I didn't know what to expect. There were no trip reports from this place. And it's probably because it's a bit fancier than m- most of the lodges that we like to go to, um, a bit shishi la-la. Um, but it was also the place to see things like white-bellied spider monkeys. But um, I was like really impressed with this place. It was indeed fancy, um, but it was it was run by an indigenous community. It's got an interesting history. It was set up about 20 years ago by a community of Quechua people, and they um, they got together and decided they wanted as a community to start an eco-lodge. And um, they... They've just done wonders. It's one of the most professionally run lodges I've ever been to. Everything was completely perfect. Um, mm. It's built in a tradition, traditional way with traditional materials, almost traditional, because they actually have an elevator inside the lodge running up to the thatch roof where there's a viewing tower, which <laughs> is a very slow elevator. It's quicker to walk and a lot less frightening. Um, but all the guides are indigenous from different parts of Ecuador. And um, the, I mean, two things really stood out apart from how, how lovely it was. First, um, these guides were just some of the best mammal spotters I've ever come across. These are old guys who grew up in the forest. Um, you know, most of them were hunting when they were kids with their families, and they were seeing everything. I was with my heat scope, and I thought I, you know, I thought I'd impressed them. No, look, there's uh, some monkeys over there, and they were like, "Yeah, yeah, the squirrel monkeys." We saw those. They were onto everything um, before I was. So exceptionally good, good spotters, and really nice people too. Um, and the other thing was that they, when the community got together, after they'd been running this for two or three years, they decided as a community to stop all hunting in the reserve. So that was 20-odd years ago now, I guess. Um, and I think as a result, I don't remember ever seeing primates so relaxed. Uh, species like woolly monkeys, which normally flee at the first sign of people, just lounging around in trees, the spider monkeys, which are critically endangered, the white-bellied spider monkeys there, super relaxed. Uh, so it was a really great place to get up close and personal with, with I think we saw eight species of primates there and giant otters every day. It's yeah, a really good spot. So um, well, yeah, I'm looking forward to writing about that. Yeah, that that's great. I, I really need to get back to Ecuador. I actually lived there um, as a kid for a year, um, and I remember seeing very very little wildlife. So. <clears throat> I definitely have to get back and certainly try and find the spectacle bears and uh, the mountain tapirs and also get down down to the Amazon as well. Yeah, no, it's a great – now it's, there's a real booming ecotourism industry there. And as you know, a lot of mammals are fairly easy to see. Yeah. Um, so you should go back. And what about you? What's been happening in Minnesota? Well, I've been following this story, which has really been making um, – lots of headlines around around the world and i don't know if you've been following it but it's basically the the story about this group of elephants that have gone and walk about in china Mm. and there are 15 elephants and they've just become this massive sort of online or massive online celebrities in china with people 
essentially following their every movement. So the story is that these elephants, they came from a small reserve in southern China, which is close to the Myanmar border. Mm-hmm. And Myanmar still has one of the largest populations of elephants left in Asia. And these particular elephants, they, they probably formed part of that Myanmar complex before becoming isolated in this reserve in China. And the reserve has been protected and elephant numbers have been increasing. There are now about 300 elephants there. So back in March 2020, 16 of these elephants, they left the park and Although some of them turned back, one group, which has both males and females, they kept on going. And they've now traveled about 300 miles, about 500 kilometers, uh, to the north of this park. And the area that they're moving through is a completely human-dominated landscape, right? So they're moving through farmers' fields, they're moving through the center of towns, across railroads, you name Mm. it. And they're just feeding on crops, they're drinking water out of cisterns, and but generally, they seem to be doing fine. In fact, a couple of infants have, have been born along the journey. Oh, wow. And the Chinese authorities, they're not quite sure what to do uh, <laughs> oh, no. with these animals. But what they're trying to do is sort of keep them out of large cities by essentially leaving stashes of, of fruit and food for them at, at strategic uh, places. Yeah. Um, but what's really interesting is when you see photos or videos of these animals is um, it's just how relaxed they appear. Right. So even if they're walking down the middle of a street in a town, normally elephants would obviously really shy away from such places and they would be showing all sorts of signs of nervousness. They'll be sniffing the air with their trunks. They'd be streaming from their temporal glands or or waving their front feet from side to side. But these elephants are completely chilled out and they seem to realize that the people are not going to hurt them. And frankly, they're making the most of it. But the thing is, no one really knows why it is that they're moving. Um, mm. So, you know, elephants are known to sometimes go on long migrations to areas that presumably in the past were part of their home range. So when I lived on Mount Kilimanjaro with my colleague John Grimshaw in 1990, there used to be a movement of elephants every year from Savo West National Park in Kenya to the lower slopes of Mount Kilimanjaro. And these these elephants would barrel their way through 20 kilometers of farmland, spend a few weeks in the forest, um, presumably getting minerals from the soil before returning back to Savo. And it's possible that these elephants in China are following former migration paths that are now lost, or perhaps they started out following former paths and now they've just lost their bearings. And there has been some speculation that they left the park because of overcrowding of elephants in the reserve, though, frankly, no one really knows. But I suppose the bottom line is that elephants in that part of the world, they've lost the majority of their habitat. And some places or some populations in places like Assam in northeast uh, India, they are now starting to live almost entirely, almost their whole lives on farmland. And they feed almost exclusively on human-produced food. And the elephants receive a certain level of protection from the people who worship the elephants as a popular deity, Ganesha, and the people are therefore quite reluctant to hurt them. However, it's not a particularly sustainable situation as elephants can decimate a small farmer's livelihood in, in a few hours. So in this situation in China, what I'm hoping is that all of this massive amount of attention will... Um, 
help people bond with elephants generally and realize that if they buy ivory, what it effectively does is it leads to <clears throat> groups of elephants just like these being killed. So we'll see. We'll see if that um, that connection is made or not. Yeah. Well, and I've seen a little bit on social media, including uh, some footage of them fast asleep in a um in, in the middle of the countryside on route, just as you say, completely relaxed. So this this sort of peace envoy mission that they're doing and spreading awareness about about how wonderful wonderful they are and ivory is, yeah, you know that's it could be really really great for the for elephants worldwide. What a yeah, great story! And, and it's just going to be interesting to see whether they eventually make it back to the park or not. Yeah, no, absolutely fascinating. I will read more about that. Great. Well. Um, we're very pleased today to have Fiona Reed with us. Uh, many of you from the website will know Fiona from her trip reports and from her uh, help on identifying mammals. I think Fiona is probably responsible for, for more, giving me more new species than any other person on the planet. She has a gift because she knows the animals so well, because she's caught so many, and because she's painted them um, so fantastically that she can identify things from photographs that most other biologists would would not risk their reputations by doing so. Um, it's I've lost count of the number of times that I've taken a picture of something interesting, even things I've caught, I don't know what they are. I send them to a biologist somewhere and they'll say, oh, I couldn't possibly tell you without seeing the skull. Um, and yet Fiona will say, I think it's such and such because it has this little tuft of fur here and it just looks right. And it, so um, she's an amazing asset and a secret weapon um, for me for getting for getting new species. But she's done a lot more, of course, of course, than that. She's um, she's been a, she's a scientist. Um, she's written field guides, eight field guides at least. Uh, she's also done the illustrations for field guides. Her artwork is just fantastic. And I'm looking at several of her pictures now hanging on the wall. She's also run tours all over the world. And now she has an eco lodge. So she has run the whole gamut of, of mammal watching professional activities. Fiona, welcome. It's really great to see you here. Um, could you, I mean, you've got such a fascinating career. Could you tell us a little bit about, about how that unfolded, the progression from, from researcher through to eco lodge owner? Um, okay, I'll try. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I guess uh, I was talking to someone about this question and they said, well, the thing about you is you've never had a real job. And that is absolutely true. The only real job I've ever had was picking tomatoes for three weeks uh, when I was a grad student. And while I was doing that, the people got my name wrong and I was Vera for three weeks <laughs> instead of Fiona. And after that, I decided I would never work for anyone ever again. Um, so I've always been self-employed and um, I was sort of flip-flop between art and science doing illustration work. And I, for a while, I was a self-employed illustrator doing encyclopedias and children's books and that kind of illustration before the World Wide Web sort of took over all that stuff. Um, and then I got started working on field guides. Well, I worked on illustrations for books by John Eisenberg on the mammals of South America. And that was what really got me into the small mammals and everything, because I was drawing things that had very little reference. And I decided, you know, I didn't really want to work with him. I wanted to do my own books. And so I decided I'd do Central America. And that's what really changed things for me. 
going and spending a lot of time in Central America. And then I was originally going to just sort of do the big flashy mammals, but I got obsessed with trying to find everything and catch everything and draw everything. And so it turned into a very big project. And I actually, as far as money, I earned more money picking tomatoes than I ever did on that book, but you know, <laughs> never mind. Um, so I became a tour guide to cover my costs. Um, that's why, and also it got me to different places. I worked for a lovely company in New York, Questions Tours and Travel, that doesn't exist anymore, but they were just ideal for my purposes because I did a lot of trips for them through Central America and all over the place, like Alaska and Indonesia and various other places. And um, they weren't too specific about what kinds of animals you looked at. So that was great. It wasn't just heavy duty birding. You could, uh, I could take people out to see uh, small you know, nocturnal species and that kind of thing, which was great. So that's how I got into field guides and touring and the eco lodge was kind of, I don't really know how that happened, but um, more on that later. <laughs> yeah, Fiona, or is, is it Vera or Fiona? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to bring, I had to put that in there. <laughs> Fiona, you you are quite well known for your field guides. Uh, you've written seven or eight field guides, and um, two of them really sort of um, to me really stood out. In the past, I've really used them a lot. The your field guide to the the mammals of North America and also to the mammals of Central America, which I think is a Fabulous book, by the way. Um, and writing field guides is—it's a—it's a love, isn't it? It, it? It's just one of those things. It takes so much time, and you really need to sort of put your your soul into it. Um, but you must have also had some great adventures writing um, some of those because, of course, you cover a lot of the, the little species as well. Do you want to tell us about um, some of the adventures you had in capturing and painting some of those animals? Uh, yes, I would love to do that. I'm going to tell you a little story about uh, capturing a rare bat in Costa Rica. I was working as a guide and um, we often went to Tortuguero and at Tortuga Lodge, one of the local guides said, you know, there's some bats under that tree, the coconut tree, coconut palm. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And I ended up like lying on the ground with my binoculars and telescope trying to get a good look at these bats. And they seemed to me that they were smoky bats, Citerops electo, which is a very, uh, very poorly known bat. And at that time, there were no photos. And those were the things that really got me um, determined to catch them so I could draw them what, as to what they actually looked like, not based on a museum specimen or some, you know, shriveled up little corpse. Um, trying to bring that to life is a lot easier to, to work from a live animal. So, um, my mother came to visit and I decided to take her to Tortuguero. This is sort of for something that John does with his children all the time, a sort of ulterior motive. <laughs> um, <laughs> once we were there that I would be able to try and uh, catch some bats. And also uh, I'd worked with the company that owned that lodge, Costa Rican Expeditions, for many years and they were very kind and paid for us to go there and stay there because, you know, in return for the various guiding trips I'd done for them. So that also was another bonus um, since I had no money. Um, so we went there and the bats had been underneath one of the smallish coconut palms, but this time they'd moved and they were under rather a tall coconut palm, you know, this is 25, 30 feet up. I don't know, it was ridiculously high, but I was really determined to catch them. 
and have a close look at them. So I, um, I had made a hand net out of a couple of coat hangers and some old mist net. So it was kind of a big hoop with the mist net. And I tied together a couple of bat net poles, taped them up, you know. So there was a sort of very wobbly structure of this really, really long pole, this sort of weird loop hoop at the top. And then the cook found me a, an abandoned stepladder, which had, I think, at least two broken rungs. And it was very rickety. So the whole thing was extremely unsafe and rickety. And I was sort of balanced on top of this stepladder looking at the bats with this very uh, wobbly pole. And and I was thinking, how am I going to do this? And sort of just slowly edging closer and closer. And then whack. And I caught four bats. uh, But I fell off the stepladder and landed on the ground. But I was so thrilled. I was so thrilled. Because they were, in fact, the smoky bats. And it was really, really exciting. Of course, my mother thought it was just, oh, darling, why do you like bats so much? And uh, not very impressed the whole thing. But I had a lovely time um, studying and painting one of these bats from life. And that was really brilliant. Um, but the problem was at the end of the trip, we flew back to San Jose and I had brought several of my plates. What I would do is uh, paint the species as I encountered them. And I didn't know what I was going to encounter there exactly. So I had about six of the original art for my book and not all the animals were painted. They looked a bit like sort of half finished jigsaws that there were bits done here and bits done there. But um we got on the plane and they insisted that it was only a five seater plane. So they, they took the luggage and said, Oh, we'll just put the luggage in the nose of the plane. And I was very reluctant about this, but I was forced to put my bag with all all the artwork in the nose of the plane. And then we took off and the plane, um, the pilot started getting really anxious and, talking on the radio to somebody and and I was the only one on the plane who spoke Spanish and I could understand what was going on and one of the hatches had come loose in the front of the plane so there was my artwork oh, in the no. hatch and I, and I thought oh no and I'm looking out the window and it's just this big swamp forest all the way there and I'm trying to I just like asking him well where are we <laughs> and my mother goes Darling, don't worry about your artwork. We're all going to die. If it hits the rubber, we're all going to die. Never mind your artwork. And I'm like, well, I might as well die if I have to lose that much artwork. Anyway, so I was very upset. Um, but we managed to uh, land safely in Guapales, one of the places where they spray crops and they have a little runway there. So we landed without, and I ran and checked the hatch and grabbed my stuff and insisted that go on the plane with me and we made it safely back um so (laughs) that was one story (laughs) that 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 is a fantastic story i know you you wrote about that or at least you mentioned it in the introduction to your central america field guide i remember reading about it years ago and thinking who is this person (laughs) she really has her priorities right in life And that that and, does capture that just captures the essence of you, Fiona. Your priorities, and that's one of the reasons I love being on a trip with you. Is that when Fiona sees something she wants to catch, there is no, there is no, uh, there is no bridge too far. She will, she will construct the most elaborate ways to get this thing and climb and dive, and she will figure out a way to get it. And it's absolute. It's so much fun, and it's just a joy to watch. And of course, there's usually a life in it for me, so even better. 
So the thing is, Fiona, these actually catching a bat is, is only part of it, but then you actually have to, to draw it. And, you know, dealing with any bat is hard. And um, be, before we came online, I was talking about Bill Stanley from the Field Museum in Chicago. And I remember um, I would take photos of Bill when he had caught a bat and uh, he'd pull its wings out, et cetera. And, and these bats would turn around and start chewing on his finger and there'd be blood running down his finger. And he'd say, hurry up, Charles, hurry up with this. And I remember once asking him, I said, Bill, how often do you get a rabies shot? And he said, rabies? I said, ah, never had a rabies jab. There's never, rabies has never been found in bats in Africa. Probably hundreds of other viruses have been found in bats in Africa, but not rabies. So wow. how exactly do you go from sort of, you know, how do you hold the bat? How do you actually paint the thing? Well, I hold them with my left hand and paint them with my right hand because I'm right-handed. But it really depends a lot on the bat. Like um, if you catch something like one of the free tail, like I remember Umops Underwood Eye, I caught that bat. It's a Underwood's massive bat um, in Arizona. And it would just sit on my hand. I didn't have, they never bite. And they, they just sit on your hand because they can't take off because you have to like, throw them up in the air to them to get enough lift to take off. So they know they can't take off. So they just sit there and they're really lovely. Um, but that's not always the case. Some of them are really, really mean. Um, <laughs> one of the most beautiful and extraordinary bats I ever had the opportunity to paint was uh, Melanectris melanops. I can't remember the common name of that bat. It's from Papua New Guinea. Ooh, and yeah. we got it in New Britain. And um, just incredibly beautiful bat. I mean, it's gorgeous golden fur on the back and this sort of yellow and back fur on the belly and the wings are sort of reticulated giraffe style pink and black and brown and then it's wow. got a white nose and a black mask but it's also got these slots on the lower lip where these gigantic canines <laughs> sit in and it's like and it's the meanest wow. little horrible bat <laughs> we had that bat in the room with us and it would just it would stay on the, we had about three of them in the room and I'd feed them and everything and and I draw them, but they were roosting in the curtains and they would just look at you in this malevolent way. Um, and when I had to draw that one, I had to be very careful. Yes, because there's various hazards. Yes, you, you're drawing onto your original art that you're going to use later. So sort of cover the area, except the bit that you're painting. Because so, uh, so when I'm drawing bats, I usually work with males because they're a bit more dispensable than females. Um, sorry, guys, but... Females could be pregnant or lactating. You know, might you have a really small baby that you don't know about, or there might be a big baby out there that you are taking its mom away from. So I tend to, if I have the option to select, I'll select a male to draw. But the problem with males is, you know, they are mammals. And so they have the ability to pee long range and splatter your page with urine. And um, then, of course, if they bite me, then I splatter the page with my blood as well. And um, those are some of the hazards of drawing things from life. Uh, so, <laughs> Fiona, how, how long does it take to draw a bat from start to finish? Um, it takes as long as it takes. I mean, sometimes two hours, sometimes four hours. It Wow. You know, it's like any job. It just depends um, what kind of mood you're in and, uh, you know, 
if you're doing it by headlamp in the dark and you've been up for three days and I had yeah, I did yeah. that with one and I ended up kind of making the bat look kind of weird and I had to take a break go back and work on it the next day but mm. wow. I can imagine I was just googling the uh the melanop was it melanictris melanops when you were talking and it's yeah. called the black-bellied fruit bat and it's actually on a, a Papua New Guinea stamp Yes, they stole my artwork. They stole my artwork. I never got paid for it. Yeah. (laughs) New Guinea Postal Service people. Uh, Yeah. It looks a bit kind of goofy in, not not your artwork, but part of it looks, it doesn't look very dangerous, but I can see how it could give you a very nasty bite, I have to say. Well, you know, some of those, I mean, most um, flying foxes are lovely, sweet creatures, but then there are a few, like the one in Psychonicturus in in Australia really lives up to its bat, its name. It's a psycho bat, you know, just like really awful little creature. They've got very sharp the, teeth, yeah. And usually they're very docile, but there are a few that are not. Yeah. That's one. <laughs> ah, okay. Well, um, talking now about, about what you're doing at the moment, I know we're talking to you from, from, from your, your place in Canada, but I've also been very lucky um, and I've, been able to visit you twice now at your new eco lodge uh, in Sylvan Falls in Costa Rica at the top of the the Osa Peninsula. Um, you, I mean, for one thing, I, I remember there was a post on on the website about uh, what what are people's backyard lists, and you know everyone was sort of squirrel, raccoon, and then you chimed in with <laughs> like fifty species from from Sylvan Falls. But for those who, um, who haven't been as lucky as me to go there, could you tell us a little bit about? the camp and the forest and, and why you love it there so much as to have actually bought a place there. Okay. Uh, it's, um, well, I'll show you it's where it is. It's not uh, on the Osa Peninsula. It's kind of just inland from there between Golfito and Rio Claro. And uh, it's a little, very steep hills and um, beautiful forest that has not been too exploited. And um, the property has, most stunning waterfalls you can imagine and I've only actually seen about five or six of them there are at least 18 more that I haven't seen because it's so steep I've very nearly killed myself on several occasions trying to uh, navigate around the place but it, there's a lot of mature forests there's some nice trails and a really good mix of habitats because we've got some cleared areas some second growth some sort of old field site habitat and lots of mature forest and then a lovely river that runs through the area that is coming down from the falls and the most beautiful waterfalls you can imagine. I thought I'd try and find out more about it by operating bio blitzes and we did a couple of bat bio blitzes and we've got over 50 species there which is really good just that's just the bats so John said I only had, I had a backyard list of 50 but actually the backyard list is over 80 for good all great. the mammals that are there wow. so it's pretty good. And I didn't know that that would be the case. I just thought it was like, it was really, really inexpensive, which now I know why, but we won't go into that. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, you know, it's just so incredibly beautiful and um, peaceful and yeah, really nice. I, I didn't really know it would sort of become an ecologic, but it kind of has, except for COVID of course, which has set things back a bit. But it's really nice. So. We'll 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 put up a link in the notes for this podcast, um, okay, so you thanks. can you can click on all that. And are you planning to run bio blitzes again 
especially bat bio blitzes, please. Yes, actually, mammal. Well, we had a mammal bio blitz kind of worked out, and then COVID struck. So that's definitely a possibility, and maybe some more bat bio blitzes. I've got three bat researchers going down for a month at the end of November from oh, cool. University of Toronto. They're going to be studying some of the nectar bats, which frequent the banana patch quite a bit. And so that'll be kind of interesting. So, yeah, hopefully. 50 bats in one area. That is astonishing. That's just crazy biodiversity. It's, um, oh, definitely have to get down there. Um, but and we found that we found that many in just two weeks, though. That was just two weeks of study that we found 50 bats. So there's going to be more. I mean, yeah. Wow. Ooh. I mean, I can't really think of anywhere else that you would get. I mean, you know, perhaps, you know, somewhere down in, uh, you know, South America, Brazil or uh, Peru or something like that, where you may get that number of species. But that's an awful lot. That's more than I'd ever expect anywhere in Africa. Are particularly keen on bats and also rodents as well. And you've sort of, um, I know you'd like to be a bit of an ambassador for these species, which tend to be underappreciated by the people. But what, what is it about these families that um, really grabs your attention? Well, as you say, I, I like to be the champion of the underdog. Uh, people think of, when people think of rats, they think of house rats and house mice, which are from Asia. And so if you're in the neotropics, they really have nothing to do with the local fauna. And there's many interesting creatures, and some of them are really quite beautiful. And then, of course, bats are fascinating, being the only um, mammals that have powered flight. You know, some gliders, but they're the only ones with powered flight, and they do it in the dark. I mean, they're just extraordinary. But for me, I like the uh, identification challenges that those mammals pose. There's so much more diverse and so many more species than if you're looking at um, cats or dogs or and also I think for me there's this huge sort of aha moment when you see a new bat if, I, if you going to Africa and going out on safari is really wonderful and I wouldn't knock it at all but for me going to look at like lions and zebras and stuff is just like wasting my time because I can see all those <laughs> yes. on tv and you know whereas if you if you find something that you've have no idea what it looks like, especially in my case, if it's something I've drawn for a book and there are basically decent photos and, you know, just dealing like with the sitterops, you know, it's this incredible, like, wow, that's what it looks like. You know, that's what his face is like and that's what it's doing. And, and, and there's always good stories because nobody knows much about them. So you can discover things just, you know, easily. And um, so there, there's a lot, but I think those are the main things, um, finding out what they, and also I guess I like finding my own stuff and going out and being shown things by other people. Or they're finding things that are difficult to identify and then identifying them is sort of a double aha moment for me. So, Right. The colliery to that, of course, is that you delve into an area where fairly little research has been done. So you must I'm assuming fairly often come across species which you look at and think, I have no idea. What what do you do in that case? Um, or does that not happen well, to you? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does, definitely. It depends a bit on the circumstances. I mean, these days, 
it's so much easier to to get really good photos you know you can sort of make the bat open it's a lot of a lot of small mammals are identified in museums based on the teeth or the skulls and you can't really rip out the skull unless you're going to collect the animal but you can often get a very good look at the teeth and these days even with a phone a decent not my phone but a decent phone or better yet you know a nice small camera you can get really good images of the teeth and you can often figure it out later or go to a museum and figure it out um, if you really think it's a brand new record for an area or a, or a species that nobody knows about, then you have to decide whether you should collect it or not and make a specimen of it. And that I think that's what I mean. It depends on the circumstance. I mean, obviously, if you're just interested in mammal watching, it doesn't really justify, I, think, I don't think, collecting unless you really know that you've got something totally extraordinary. But, you know, that's a, that's a different sort of question but I think these days there's quite a lot of information you can get with a, a good little camera I got a, a nectar bat at Sylvan I wasn't it didn't fit the description in my book which was very annoying to me because I had something wrong about the amount of fur, fur on the forearm but from taking pictures of the teeth we were able to I was able to figure it out later I didn't I couldn't figure it out right there and then but I could figure it out later and it was just that I'd got something wrong or there's variation maybe Mm. um in in some of the features and just to ask how exactly do you coax the bat to open its mouth so you can take pictures of the teeth <laughs> um well a lot of them just do it i mean all of my it's for me it's more a matter of coaxing them to close their mouth i mean <laughs> you get a myotis and not on your finger glare at you you know and uh, i've done a lot of uh, I did a lot of guiding with Merlin Tuttle a great bat photographer and champion of bats and he and I led trips together to a number of countries Africa Australia Brazil um, and he really does not like people to take pictures of wide open mouth grimacing bats he wants bats to look nice and he's extremely good at making them look sweet he um actually takes ba baby shampoo and shampoos the bats to make <laughs> their fur nice and soft and fluffy <laughs> shampoos and blow dries <laughs> so of course he does <laughs> his, his, his bats don't grimace but a lot of bats will grimace at you and and i guess you're thinking some of the flying foxes they don't want to open their mouth but you can give them treats sometimes that's a good way to get them to open their mouth if you know if they get they like to eat something then it's sometimes difficult to get the photo but it's possible you know so have a collection of mealworms or crickets or roaches or something for insect eaters and a bit of fruit for the fruit eaters and then they'll open their mouths nectar bats open their mouths but when you give them sugar water they'll start slurping their their lower incisors are extremely difficult to see because there's always a tongue in the way and it's very difficult um but yeah you can coax them wow <laughs> a whole world i knew nothing about <laughs> tips of the trade from fiona yes excellent stuff <laughs> for aspiring bat photographers um yeah and no, I've, I've i've been i've been with fiona when we you know trying to do exactly that and i'm trying to take a picture and i'm not very good and the fiona's trying to encourage the bat to do that and it's it it's 
it is it's not easy but it yeah it's i think i'm sure it's a lot easier than it was 20 years ago even with photographers of my limited capability well fiona thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure to see you again and to talk to you and to hear these stories some of them new um yeah thank you thank you very much for sharing all that with us it's been absolutely fascinating thank you very much fiona I'll see you soon you're welcome thank you you've been listening to memo watching with charles foley and john hall you can find other episodes at memowatching.com 